We've been on this series uh, where we're talking through the book of Amos. We're now on the very last sermon about, the, about Amos. Um, and today I have titled the sermon, if you're taking notes, if you're looking at the notes, today's sermon title is The Gospel of Amos. The Gospel of Amos. Now I don't mean that the book of Amos should be included in the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I'm not saying that. Gospel simply means good news. Everyone say good news. And what I hope to do today is to show you how the book of Amos ultimately points to the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. So one thing you'll notice that I'll do today is I will repeatedly talk about Israel that is mentioned in the book of Amos. And then I will show you how Amos's words are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And my goal is to show you how the ending of the book of Amos is ultimately good news for all of us today. Amen. Are you ready, church? Let's unpack the gospel of Amos. Amos chapter nine, verse seven to 15. Are you not Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not, did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Arameans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and, I will, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will, rebuild, I will repair his broken walls and restore his ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Spirit, would you come and reveal who Jesus is, even in an Old Testament book like Amos, that you would have thought of us, that you would have thought of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the brilliance of the Almighty God, that you have decided to save us, to love us through that very day on Christmas Day that we're gonna celebrate in a month. Come and speak to us, God, and reveal your good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Today's passage is the final nine verses of the book of Amos, and they give us three movements. I'm plagiarizing and borrowing Lester's words from last Sunday, because I like the word movement. It's very millennial. So I don't have three points for you, church, today. I have three movements. <laughs> so let's unpack them one by one. The first movement is judgment. The first part of the book, the first part of today's passage is judgment. Verse seven says this, are, you not, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Arameans from Kir? 
Now, to get what God is saying, we need to first understand the context of the nations that are named here. Cushites, who are they? They represent the most geographically and culturally different people from Israel. So there's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Yerk Jeremias. He said this, from the perspective of Palestine, the people in Middle East, in other words, Israel in this case, the inhabitants of Cush, encompassing geographically modern-day Ethiopia and southern Sudan Africans, were the southernmost, most distant, and at the same time, because of their skin color, the strangest people with whom one can come into contact with. Which means to say they were the furthermost people that Israelites would ever know. And they were the most different people, skin color and culturally, that Israel would ever know. So who are the Philistines and Arameans then? These are the two arch enemies of the nation of Israel and Judah. Now the exact locations of Kaphtor and Kir are nowhere mentioned anywhere else. But the main point is this, Israel's God is also God over all the nations. And the point is neither to elevate or to put down one people group over the other. That's not the point. What God is saying is that you Israelites, you are worth just as much as anybody else to me. That's what God is saying. And even the most geographically and culturally different people like the Cushites, even the most religiously and politically different people like the Philistines and the Arameans. Why is this so? Because God sees all people equally. Everyone say equally. And because God sees all people equally, He judges all people equally. Now suppose you and I, right? I did something against you. I did something wrong to you. And God sees from heaven. And God comes to me and He says, well then, I, I saw what you did, but because I like you, so I'm just gonna keep quiet. I, I'm gonna close one eye to what you're doing, okay? Shh, don't tell your mom, shh. So he, 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 he does these things to me and then he lets me go scot-free. Now we would say that God is good to me, but we would say that God was not good to you. Isn't that true? But because God sees everyone equal, He's not biased, so He judges everyone equally. No one gets any special privileges, not even Israel, not even His people. That's why in verse eight, God says, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom, that's Israel. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. God tells us how Israel's judgment will look like. He says the kingdom of Israel will be destroyed and the dynasty of Israel will indeed end. In fact, it will die nasty indeed. I'll give you two seconds. <laughs> it will end indeed, but that does not mean that the people of Israel is going to be totally destroyed. And from history, we know this to be true. See, Amos' prophecy was given a long time ago. And then what happened in 720 BC, before Jesus was born, the, the kingdom of Assyria attacked the kingdom of Israel and utterly destroyed the kingdom. It ended right there. But eventually, 200 years later, in 538 BC, a remnant of the people of Israel, together with Judah, went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city. So what God says, He does. What God promises, He will fulfill. Someone say, Amen. And what is the goal of God's judgment here then in Israel? 
He reveals it in verse 9 and 10. Let's read on. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. Those of us who cook, you know what this looks like, a sieve. And not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Notice the purpose of God's judgment is not judgment itself. God is not a God who judges simply because He's a judging God. God is not a wrathful God because He is, God is not a God who pours out wrath because He is a wrathful God. God is not simply angry because He's always an angry God. You know, I remember the scene, and I love the scene in, in, in the movie Avengers, where one of the Avengers turned to the Incredible Hulk, who was about to turn green and, and turn big, right? And he says, what is your secret to turning into this Incredible Hulk? And then Bruce Banner, who is the Hulk, turns to the guy and says, my secret is I'm always angry. And then he turns into this Hulk. Now, God is not like that. Sometimes we think of God. God is always angry. That's why there's judgment. No, the goal of God's judgment is not judgment itself. What is it? It's as Abraham, uh, as, as a Jewish scholar, Abraham Joshua Heschel puts it. I love the way he puts it. He talks about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Its purpose and consummation, its end goal, is that it's, it's its own disappearance. This is the dream of God, to say to himself, I have no more wrath. I have no more judgment. I am not angry anymore. Isaiah 27 verse 4. That is the goal of God. The purpose of Israel's judgment in this case is to separate or to sieve out all the sinners from God's people. To remove all the sinners from among God's people. Who are these sinners? The way God describes them is very interesting. It's those who say to themselves, disaster will not overtake or meet us. Notice the problem here is not so much their actions, but their attitudes. For nine and a half chapters in the book of Amos, we talk about how they mistreated the poor. We talk about how they usurped power for themselves. We talk about how they were, uh, uh, they were unjust and exploited many people about the things they did. But right here, it's got nothing to do with what they did. It's simply their attitudes. Disaster will not overtake or meet us. And I believe there are some things that we can pull out from what they said that teaches us about some possible attitudes that they might have had. So I want to raise at least three possible attitudes. Number one, they were egotistic. They were very sure of themselves and were looking at themselves. I don't need God. Disaster will overtake on me. No, I don't need. I have what it takes to weather the storm. Religion is a crutch for the weaklings. I'm strong enough. I don't need a God. I don't need the idea of someone more powerful than I am. I am the master of my own destiny. That's one of the attitudes. But the problem with this attitude, my friends, is that no one is really in control of their own future. No one knows what's gonna to happen tomorrow. We can plan, we can schedule, we can roster, we can program. We can invest, but no one is gonna know what's gonna to happen tomorrow. And COVID-19 taught us that so well. Isn't that true? So the first attitude, I don't need. The second attitude is being apathetic. I don't care. Disaster will not overtake or meet us. You know why? Because I don't care. I, I have one life and I'm gonna live it. You only get to live once. 
If I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die partying. If I'm gonna sink, I'm gonna sink singing. If I'm gonna go down, I'm gonna go down rocking, rocking. Because this is my, my one life. I'm gonna live it out however I want. But the problem with this attitude is that death is not the end. When you finish your life, it's actually not the end. We're all going to live forever. When you finish your life on earth, you're still gonna live for a long, long time, forever, God says. The big question is not whether you live or die. The question is, where will you be living when you die? Will you be in heaven where God is? Or will you be in eternal hell, separated from God for all eternity? So number one, I don't need. Number two, I don't care. Number three is the attitude of being agnostic. I don't believe. This is the most common one. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in what you're saying. I don't believe in you, Amos. I'm unconvinced. You wanna convince me? You tell me, you argue with me, and tell me. I don't believe you right now. Now the problem with this attitude is it assumes too much of ourselves. It assumes that the truth, somehow we can arrive at a, a, a level of reasoning to, to, to understand God enough for us to say, ah, okay, now I get it. I understand God. You see, if I can explain God to you and I can make God known completely to you, then God is not God. I am God. And at some point of time, we, we, we can reason up to a certain point, but at some point of time, it's always going to take faith to follow Jesus. Isn't that true? So I don't need, I don't care, I don't believe. And I find that even to this day, this very day today, most people who don't believe the gospel usually hold on to one or more of these attitudes. So it's not that uncommon. But here's something that might be surprising for us if you think about it. Even Christians struggle with these today. What do I mean? Number one, I don't need. All of us are so busy. We all got thousands of things going on in our lives. Isn't that true? After this, you got lunch to think of. You got to think of different places, different things to cook. You got to do your shopping. You got to do your Christmas groceries, blah, 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 blah. We got thousands of things going on. My question is, out of the thousands of things that you've got going on today, how many of them did you bring before the Lord in prayer? See, what we tend to do is we got a thousand things to do. 999 of them, I've got it down. I plan for it. I'm in control. I've got it scheduled. I've got enough money for it. I just need to make sure that everything works out. But for the one thing that I can't control, I give to God in prayer. That's what we tend to do. How many of us wake up in the morning and pray? How many of us pray through everything that we do? God, thank you, Lord, that I'm gonna drive to church today. I pray for a safe journey. I pray, God, that I'll meet you today. God, I thank you for the coffee that I'm gonna drink because it will bless me. And Lord, let it be a blessing to my body as I worship you today. How many of us pray throughout our day recognizing that we need God for everything that goes on in our lives? Maybe we got sucked into the attitude, I don't really need God for all things in my life. But the Bible says in Philippians chapter four, verse, four to, verse six to seven, do not be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God in everything. I don't care, the second attitude. How many of us woke up this morning and gave thanks that we are alive? God, I thank you. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I woke up this morning and I get to come to church. I cannot believe that this breath that I have, you're still giving it to me and I can release it to you this morning in worship. 
God, I cannot believe that you will still be so good to me, that you allow me to live another day, another moment for you. We live, some of us live every day like we're gonna live forever. And we forget that God is the one who gives us our breath. But we live forever because God is so good to us. He cares for us. And sometimes we go through every day without a single care, without any thanksgiving to God for, his, for Him being so good to us. And last one, I don't believe. I'll give an example. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, those of us who murder, you heard it said before that if you murder, you will be judged. But did you know that if you are angry at a brother or sister, you will also be judged? How many of us, in moments when we're angry, we choose to remain in anger? Did you know you'll be judged the same way as God judges a murderer? In the same passage, Jesus says that if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her. How many of us are still looking at pornography? How many of us are still looking at women or men and lusting after them? Jesus says, it is better for you to gouge out your eye, to dig out your eye and, and, and get rid of it than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If any one of you is sinning, it's better for you to cut off your, your hands that is sinning that's causing you to sin than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. How many of us truly believe that and take it seriously? I don't believe. Maybe some of us hold on to those attitudes. But for those of us who take God's word seriously, there is indeed good news. And the next movement, so judgment is over, now we move to the next movement. It tells us how the good news looks like for Israel. Second movement, restoration. So Amos switches gear here and moves from judgment to restoration, from destruction to reconstruction, from curses to blessing. And as an Old Testament scholar, Julius Wellhausen, he described this part of Amos as roses and lavender instead of blood and iron. You see, for the first nine and a half chapters of Amos, it was all about blood and iron and judgment. And suddenly there's a very beautiful picture of roses and lavender. What changed that caused the switch? Is it God? Did God change? Surely not. Did the people of God change? Not evidently in this text. Is it God's standard? His measurement has changed? His law has changed? Then that would be contradictory to His justice. So the big change, brothers and sisters, is just this. God's judgment has already been passed. Judgment is done. Winter is over, spring is here. For those of us who have built houses, the demolition is done. The rebuilding can now begin. Look at what it says in verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. What is David's fallen shelter in this passage? It's actually not a reference to the Jerusalem temple. It's not a reference to the temple because the temple was in Jerusalem. It's in southern kingdom of Judah. It's not in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's actually in reference to David's kingdom, his dynasty, the lineage that was broken around 900 BC, 200 years before Amos was born. It was broken after King Solomon and it became the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. So how did God eventually restore David's kingdom? God fulfilled His promise through His Son, Jesus Christ, who was born not only of God's Spirit, but born into the bloodline of David. Look at what it says in Luke 1. 
The angel said to Mary on that very first Christmas day, not actually no, nine months before the first Christmas day, women don't give birth so fast. He said to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Through Jesus, what was once separated will be reconciled again. What was once damaged will be repaired again. What was once broken will be rebuilt again. And what was once destroyed will be restored again. Amen. That's what it says here in Amos. It's talking about Jesus. And in verse 12, look at this. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. God is talking about Edom and all the nations. What is it about Edom and all the nations that's got to do with Jesus or got to do with Israel? Now I want you to notice, whose name do Edom and all the nations bear? The Lord. In the Hebrew, is the actual word Yahweh. The name of God, the actual name of God. How many of us know this to be true? When you have your name on something, it means that you have ownership over that thing. How many of us know that to be true? That's why when you, when us as parents, when you buy water bottles for your kids to go to school, you would, when they come back and before they go to school, you will write their names on the water bottle or you will print a label or a sticker and put their names on the water bottle because the water bottle belongs to your kid. God forbid that all the parents go to Kmart and buy the same cheap water bottle and then when they go to school, my kid's water bottle looks like everybody else's and someone else is gonna be drinking his saliva and he's gonna be drinking someone else's saliva. So better not let that happen. I will put his name on the water bottle because that means ownership over that bottle. We do the same for lunch bags, we do the same for bags, we do the same for some of our, our, our things, our possessions. When you have your name on something, it means you have ownership over that thing. So what is God, what is God saying here? God is saying, Israel, you bear my name because you belong to me. But not just you, the nations bear my name because they also belong to me. And I'm gonna bring you back, but I'm also gonna bring all the nations back to myself. And part of the reason why I restore you, Israel, is because I'm gonna restore the nations through you. And together, all of you will be restored to me. How was this promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ? We see this in a sermon that Peter preached. We don't really talk about this, but, but it's very interesting. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 36. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, all nations, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, that message long time ago, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ? That is it. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. Peter is saying that the good news that, that God first sent to Israel was meant to be shared to every nation. And because Jesus Christ isn't just the Lord of Israel, Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. Amen. Church, just as the restoration of Israel is meant to overflow to the nations, 
The salvation that God gives to us is meant to overflow to the people around us. Amen. Amen. We are blessed by God to bless other people. We are helped by God to help other people. We are restored by God to restore other people. We are saved by God to bring salvation to other people. How many of us say amen to that? Turn to someone next to you and say, I am saved for you. When I, was, when I was preparing this and I was thinking, should I say this? Initially, my first thought was to get you guys to turn to one another and say, God saved me for you. But then I realized there are many single people in our, in our congregation. And it's kind of weird for you to turn to them and say, God saved me for you. <laughs> you know, but, but, but hey, you, know, you, know, you never know what's gonna happen. There might be some real breakthroughs happening today. So turn to the person next to you and say, God saved me for you. And all the singles say, Amen. Amen. Well, that's very soft. You don't believe it. (laughs) So after judgment comes restoration. After restoration comes the third movement, reversal. Verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Now, you got to understand this. Listen closely, because this is a little, bit, um, um, a little bit more complex. So listen out for this, okay? In a normal farming cycle, in, a, in the agricultural world, in a normal farming cycle throughout the calendar year, here's what happens. Barley and wheat harvest happens usually around April and May. April and May, that's when they begin to harvest the barley and the wheat. And then somewhere in October to November, that's where they'll start to prepare for the next cycle next year. So they begin to plow the land, they'll till the land, they'll prepare the land so that they can start planting the new seeds. That's in October to November. And what God is saying here is that my restoration over you, Israel, will be so supernatural, so super abundant, And the harvest will be so plentiful that even come October to November, when the plowman starts to till the land, you guys are still going to be struggling with trying to harvest all that I'm going to give to you. You're going to be harvesting from April to May to June to July to August to September to October to November. Even when the guys come to plow the land, you'll still be harvesting. That's what it means. And in the same way, the treading of grapes when they harvest grapes and they start treading on the grapes, that normally happens in August to September. And after that, the farmers will start to plant the seeds again in November to December. So what he's saying once again is that the grape vines are gonna be so abundant that the guy who's treading the grapes will still be treading on the grapes three months after come November and December. There will be such abundance, such blessing, such a turnaround. In fact, the Bible tells us the grape harvest will be so plentiful that the mountains will be soaked in new wine. Can you imagine? Not soaked in rainwater, not soaked with your sprinklers, but soaked in wine. It's overflowing with wine and the wine will flow from all hills, which means to say it's no longer just a few people with those special land that's gonna get all the wine. Everyone who has some sort of a backyard will be super abundant. It is now for everyone, not just for the rich and the powerful. Now, how do all these fit into God's reversal of Israel? How does all this fit in? Now, every promise that God gives here is actually a direct reversal of an earlier judgment in the book of Amos. We've gone through all that, 
Every single one of these that I just mentioned is a direct reversal of something that God promised as judgment over Israel. Now, I don't have the time to go through all that, but you can turn to all the verses in FCC.live. So I put it on the sermon notes in FCC.live. Go ahead and read it. But you can see in there how every single blessing here is a reversal of something that God had, had judged Israel for. Okay, so God is promising in here, in summary, where their tables were once empty, they are now full. Where their fields were once dry, they are now fertile. Where the vineyards were once barren, they are now abundant. And where their leaders once hoarded all the wealth and all the good things for themselves, now there's equity for everyone. Where they were once in captivity, they are now set free. Hallelujah. Verse 14. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. Or in, in another translation, it says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. But literally, in the Hebrew, God says, I will reverse. I will, I will reverse. But reverse what? Reverse the effects of God's judgment. Why would God say that now? It's because judgment is over. It is done. The restoration work has already started. It's ongoing. And now it is finished. It's going to be finished. The great reversal of God is going to take place. How was this fulfilled in Jesus Christ? It's when He died on the cross for our sins and was raised to life. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the, in the NLT, it says this, All of us used to live that way in evilness, in wickedness, in sin, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And then in verse eight, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take any credit for this. This is the gift of God, a gift from God. When we believe in Jesus, we receive a gift that we did nothing to deserve. In fact, I want you to notice in Israel's turnaround in this particular passage, it was all God's work. Israel didn't have to do no nothing. In fact, 11 times God said, I will, I will, I will destroy. I will shake, I will restore, I will repair, I will rebuild, I will bring back, I will plant. What does this mean? It means the one who judges Israel is the same one who takes a judgment upon himself. The one who judges guilty is the same one who takes the responsibility for the outcome. The one who judges sin is the same one who pays the penalty for sin. That's what it means. In 1962, two missionaries called Don and Carol Richardson. They went to Papua New Guinea, hoping to reach a particular people group, to, to spread the gospel to them, to live with them, and to share the gospel with them. And this is a group of people called the Sawis. The Sawis were cannibals, means they ate people. The Sawis were also headhunters, which means to say if they don't like you, they'll cut off your head just for fun, and they'll keep it as a memento for themselves. So Don stayed there for a long time. He tried to immerse himself in the culture, learn the language. But he found many great difficulties. One of the great difficulties is obviously there's a real possibility that he could lose his head. 
But the other, the other thing was, there was just too much difference in the culture that the Sawis lived in versus his culture where he came from. And one of the cultures that the Sawis really valued is lies and deception. If you can lie, if you can deceive, if you can trick someone, you're really good. In fact, in, in the Gospels, when he tried to share the Gospels to them, the Sawis heard the Gospel, and to them, the real hero of the Gospel is not Jesus. The real hero of the Gospel is Judas Iscariot, because he managed to trick Jesus. So to them, it's like, wow, this guy's hero. Jesus is so silly. He's a fool. But the breakthrough came at one point when the village was being attacked by an enemy tribe. And the attacks went on for weeks until a point of time where it was a, it was a stalemate, right? People would still die, but, but neither of them would win. And one day, the, the chief of the village, of Don's village, thought to himself, I've got to end this. So what did he do? He didn't fight. He didn't challenge. He didn't deceive. All he did was he took his newborn baby and put it into the hands of the enemy chief. And what this means for the Sawis in their culture is this baby is now a peace child. As long as the baby lives in the enemy's tribe, as long as the child grows up in the enemy's tribe, which is probably going to be the rest of his life, there will always be peace between the tribes. The chief had to pay the ultimate price in order to bring peace for his people. Now in John 3.16, a very familiar verse to so many of us, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Sometimes we read this verse and we see it like, oh, it's so romantic. God so loved the world. God so loved me. He loves us so much. But He gave. He gave His Son to a murderous people who will rip Him apart, who will tear Him up, who will beat Him, who will scorn Him, who will one day nail him on that cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God paid the ultimate price by giving his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. May we never forget that. But God also raised him from the dead to reverse the effects of sin. So now we have access to God's freedom, His healing, His wholeness, His restoration, and His eternal life. How many of us say amen? amen? And now we finally come to the end of the book. This is how the last words of Amos goes. Verse 15. Says the Lord your God. At the very end, for the first time in the entire book of Amos, God addresses himself in relation to Israel as the Lord, your God. All this time he says, the Lord God, the Lord God is gonna judge you. The Lord God, the sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, he's gonna come against you. But now he says, I am the Lord, your God. And this statement reveals God's purpose for judgment, for restoration, and for reversal. God's purpose is so that He can be their God again. So brothers and sisters, the entire book of Amos ends with this. It, it boils down to this. It's about a God who so desires for His people. That same God who said in Leviticus 26 verse 12, I will be your God and you will be my people. In the same way he desires for you and I today. What is the gospel of Amos? It is that this almighty, 
powerful, transcendent God of the heavens wants to be our God. And this is indeed good news. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me for a little while? And maybe some of us sitting today in city campus, joining us online, or even in Willerton campus, today you came to church and you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you are a Christian. You don't know where you stand with God. The Bible tells us that the good news is good only when we receive it. And if you want to receive the good news of Jesus Christ and to put your faith in Him, here's what I want you to do today. Simply raise your hands. If that's you today and you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you stand with God and you want to receive this good news of Jesus Christ into your life, put your faith in Him. Would you raise your hand high up so that I can see it and I can pray with you in the next few minutes? Just keep your hands up. Yes, I see a hand right there, brother. You can you, you keep your hands up, high up, high up. Is there anyone else? The city campus as well. My friend, keep your hand up. Now I want to speak to the rest of us who are Christians as well. If you came to church today, and you at this moment, God is speaking to you, and you feel that you need God's forgiveness for your sins, I want you to raise your hand up as well. If you need God's forgiveness, I see your hands right at the front, in the second row. I see your hands on the left. Raise your hand high up, because I'm gonna pray with you as well. I see the hand right there next to the brother. I see the hand behind, I see the hand behind. City Campus, you do the same, you raise your hands. If you need God's forgiveness for your sins, right now. Wonderful. Put your hands down. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian for a long time. Doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. Pray this prayer with me. Church, would you support our friends in this prayer? Repeat after me these simple words. Lord Jesus, I know I need to be forgiven. I come before you today and recognize that I am a sinner. I need you to come into my life and cleanse me of all my sins. I put my faith in you. I believe that you are God and I believe you can make me healed. You can make me whole and you will take away my sins. Help me to believe in you all the rest of my life and to know you more each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you give a big hand for all our friends who prayed that prayer?